Hello, and welcome to the Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout. Each week we explore classic sci-fi from the atomic age and beyond. I'm your host, Brad Grahowski, the voice of Brad.com. Let's begin Series 1, a 12-episode series starting with the first chapter of the four-part short story, Flight from Tomorrow, written by Henry Beam Piper, originally published in 1950 in the popular science fiction magazine, Science Fiction Stories. All right, let's get started. Flight from Tomorrow, Chapter 1. But yesterday, a whole planet had shouted, Hail Hradska! Hail the leader! Today, they were screaming, Death to Hradska! Kill the tyrant! The palace, where Hradska, surrounded by his sycophants and guards, had lorded it over a solar system, was now an inferno. Those who had been too closely identified with the dictator's rule to hope for forgiveness were fighting to the last seeking only a quick death in combat. One by one, their isolated points of resistance were being wiped out. The corridors and chambers of the huge palace were thronged with rebels, loud with their shouts, and with the rasping hiss of heat beams and the crush of blasters, reeking with the stench of scorched plastic and burned flesh, of hot metal and charred fabric. The living quarters were overrun, the mob smashed down walls and tore up floors in search of secret hiding places. They found strange things. The spaceship that had been built under one of the domes, in readiness for flight to the still-loyal colonies on Mars or the asteroid belt, for instance. But Radska himself they could not find. At last, the search reached the new tower, which reared its head 5,000 feet above the palace the highest thing in the city. They blasted down the huge steel doors, cut the power from the energy screens. They landed from anti-grav cars on the upper levels. But except for the barriers of metal and concrete and energy, they were met with no opposition. Finally, they came to the spiral stairway, which led up to the great metal sphere which capped the whole structure. General Zarvaz, the army commander who had placed himself at the head of the revolt, stood with his foot on the lowest step, his followers behind him. There was Prince Bervani, the leader of the old nobility, and Gorzesko Orm, the merchant, and between them stood Tab, the chieftain of the mutinous slaves. There were clerks, laborers, poor but haughty nobles, and wealthy merchants who had long been forced to hide their riches from the dictator's tax-gatherers and soldiers and spacemen. You'd better let some of us go first, General Zarvis's orderly, a blood-stained bandage about his head, his uniform in rags, suggested. You don't know what might be up there. The general shook his head. Hmm, I'll go first. Zarvis Pohl was not the man to send subordinates into danger ahead of himself. To tell the truth, I'm afraid we won't find anything at all up there. You mean, Gorzesko Orm began. Hmm, the time machine, Zarvas Pohl replied. If he's managed to get it finished, the great mind only knows where he may be now, or when. 
he loosened the blaster in his holster and started up the long spiral. His followers spread out below. Sharpshooters took position to cover his ascent. Prince Bervani and Tob the slave started to follow him. They hesitated as each motioned to the other to precede him. Then the nobleman followed the general, his blaster down, and the brawny slave behind him. The door at the top was open, and Zarvas Pol stepped through. But there was nothing in the great spherical room except a raised dais some fifty feet in diameter, its polished metal top strangely clean and empty, and a crumpled heap of burned cloth and charred flesh that had, not long ago, been a man. An old man with a white beard and the seven-pointed star of the Leonard brothers on his breast advanced to meet the armed intruders. So he is gone, Kradzi Zago, Zarvis Pohl said, holstering his weapon. Gone in the time machine to hide in yesterday or tomorrow, and you let him go. The old one nodded. He had a blaster and I had none. He indicated the body on the floor. Zoldi Charv had no blaster either, but he tried to stop Radska. See, he squandered his life as a fool squanders his money, getting nothing for it. And a man's life is not money, Zarvaspol. I do not blame you, Kradzizago, General Zarvis said. But now you must get to work and build us another time machine so that we can hunt him down. Does revenge mean so much to you, then? The soldier made an impromptu gesture. Revenge is for fools, like that pack of screaming beasts below. I do not kill for revenge. I kill because dead men do no harm. Ratska will do us no more harm, the old scientist replied. He is a thing of yesterday of a time long past and half lost in the midst of legend. No matter. As long as he exists at any point in space-time, Radska is still a threat. Revenge means much to Radska. He will return for it when we least expect him. The old man shook his head. No, Zarvaspol, Radska will not return. Radska holstered his blaster threw the switch that sealed the time machine, put on the anti-grav unit, and started the time shift unit. He reached out and set the destination dial for the mid-52nd century of the atomic era. That would land him in the Ninth Age of Chaos, following the Two-Century War and the collapse of the world theocracy. A good time for his purpose. The world would be slipping back into barbarism, and yet possess the technologies of former civilizations. A hundred little national states would be trying to regain social stability, competing and warring with one another. Rodska glanced back over his shoulder at the cases of books, record spools, tridimensional pictures, and scale models. These people of the past would welcome him, and his science of the future would make him their leader. He would start in a small way, by taking over the local feudal or tribal government, would arm his followers with weapons of the future. Then he would impose his rule upon neighboring tribes, or princedoms, or communes, or whatever, and build a strong sovereignty. From that, he envisioned a world empire, a solar system empire. Then he would build time machines, many time machines, 
he would recruit an army such as the universe had never seen, a swarm of men from every age in the past. At that point, he would return to the hundredth century of the atomic era to wreak vengeance upon those who had risen against him. A slow smile grew on Hradska's thin lips as he thought of the tortures with which he would put Zarvas Pol to death. He glanced up at the great disk of the indicator and frowned. Already he was back to the year 7500 AE, and the temporal displacement had not begun to slow. The disk was turning even more rapidly. 7,000, 6,000, 5,500. He gasped slightly. Then he had passed his destination. He was now in the 40th century, but the indicator was slowing. The hairline crossed the 30th century, the 20th, the 15th, the 10th. He wondered what had gone wrong, but he had recovered from his fright by this time. When the insane machine stopped, as it must around the first century of the atomic era, he would investigate, make repairs, then shift forward to his target point. Hradska was determined upon the 52nd century. He had made a special study of the history of that period, had learned the language spoken then, and he understood the methods necessary to gain power over the natives of that time. The indicator disc came to a stop in the first century. He switched on the magnifier and leaned forward to look. He had emerged into a normal time in the year 10 of the atomic era, a decade after the first uranium pile had gone into operation and seven years after the first atomic bombs had been exploded in warfare. The altimeter showed that he was hovering at 8,000 feet above ground level. Slowly, he cut out the anti-grav, letting the time machine down easily. He knew that there had been no danger of materializing inside anything. The new tower had been built to put it above anything that had occupied that space point at any moment within history or legend or even the geological knowledge of man. What lay below, however, was uncertain. It was night. The visiscreen showed only a star-dusted moonless sky and dark shadows below. He snapped another switch. For a few microseconds, a beam of intense light was turned on, automatically photographing the landscape under him. A second later, the developed picture was projected upon another screen. It showed only wooded mountains and a barren, brush-grown valley. The time machine came to rest with a soft jar and a crashing of broken brushes that was audible through the sound pickup. Hradska pulled the main switch. There was a click as the shielding went out and the door opened. A breath of cool night air drew into the hollow sphere. Then there was a loud bang inside the mechanism, and a flash of blue-white light which turned to pinkish flame with a nasty crackling. Curls of smoke began to rise from the square black box that housed the time-shift mechanism and from behind the instrument board. In a moment, everything was glowing hot. Driblets of aluminum and silver were running down from the instruments. Then the whole interior of the time machine was afire. There was barely time for Hradska to leap through the open door. The brush outside impeded him, and he used his blaster to clear a path for himself away from the big sphere, which was now glowing faintly on the outside. The heat grew in intensity, 
and the brush outside was taking fire. It was not until he had gotten 200 yards from the machine that he stopped, realizing what had happened. The machine, of course, had been sabotaged. That would have been young Zoldy, whom he had killed, or that old billy goat Kradzi Zago. The latter, most likely. He cursed both of them for having marooned him in this savage age at the very beginning of atomic civilization, with all his printed and recorded knowledge destroyed. Oh, he could still gain mastery over these barbarians. He knew enough to fashion a crude blaster or a heat beam gun or an atomic electric conversion unit. But without his books and records, he could never build an anti-grav unit, and the secret of the temporal shift was lost. For time is not an object or a medium which can be traveled along. The time machine was not a vehicle. It was a mechanical process of displacement within the space-time continuum, and those who constructed it knew that it could not be used with the sort of accuracy that the dials indicated. Rodska had ordered his scientists to produce a time machine, and they had combined the possible displacement with the space-time continuum with the sort of fiction the dictator demanded for their own well-being. Even had there been no sabotage, his return to his own time was nearly of zero probability. The fire, spreading from the time machine, was blowing toward him. He observed the wind direction and hurried around out of the path of the flames. The light enabled him to pick his way through the brush, and after crossing a small stream, he found a rutted road and followed it up the mountainside until he came to a place where he could rest concealed until morning. We hope you've enjoyed Flight from Tomorrow, Chapter 1. Written by Henry Beam Piper. Narrated by Brad Grahowski. For more information about Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, visit thevoiceofbrad.com spaceman. If you are enjoying Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. The Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout is written, produced, edited, and performed by Brad Grahowski. We leave you with a moment of Chapter 2 from next week. He was apparently some sort of a scientist. He examined the man and his wife, asked many questions, and administered drugs. He also took samples for blood tests and urinalysis. This, Rodska considered, was another of the many contradictions he had encountered among these people. This man behaved like an educated scientist and seemingly had nothing in common with a peasant herb gatherer on the mountainside. Thank you, and journey well among the stars. <laughs>